Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. He's America's most recognized and respected frontline travel news journalist. And in this podcast, Peter Greenberg holds in-depth interviews with travel industry insiders, giving listeners practical news they can use on topics ranging from the shrinking carry-on luggage allowances to traveling through the Middle East. This is the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. And welcome aboard another edition of the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS. And uh, welcome to another show. Uh, There's so much stuff going on in the news. I have to start with the obvious, and that, of course, is Cuba. We've had the death of Fidel Castro, but even before he died at the age of 90, Cuba was front-page news because so many airlines are now flying there. Uh, In the recent weeks, we've had uh, JetBlue with their inaugural service from JFK. We've had United Airlines with their inaugural service from Newark. Many other airlines going, not just to Havana, but to eight other airports in that country. We have cruise lines that are going now. The Jamaicans and the Italians have been going for years, but now we have a U.S. line called Fathom going in there under the Carnival brand on, on people-to-people exchange programs. And within the next six months, you're probably going to see five or six other major cruise lines given permission to sail into not just Havana, but many other harbors uh, around the, the island nation. Uh, joining me now, the, the travel editor for BBC.com, Ann Bannis. Hi, Ann. Hi, Peter. So let's talk about this. I mean, everybody wants to go to the once forbidden island. Uh, everybody thinks that they can go, but not everybody knows how they can go. And the rules, unless I'm crazy, seem to be changing on an almost daily basis as to what constitutes an approved trip. That's really true. And I went about a year and a half ago, or uh, maybe even two years ago at this point, and at the time it was you had to uh, fit into one of these 12 categories, and one of the easiest ones for, for most tourists is the people-to-people exchange program, um, which basically means you sign up for a tour and you go and have these experiences where you meet with people. Like For example, I met with a, a baseball player who did play in the major leagues at one point, uh, some food journalists, uh, some some kids that uh, were acrobat, like learning to kind of do these circus, uh, Cirque du Soleil style acrobatics, and musicians and artists, and it really is an enriching experience. But it's different when you're used to sort of the notion of independent travel. That said, it seems that independent travel is is becoming more and more likely for people going to Cuba these days from the United States. It is, and you mentioned those twelve different ways. On those particular programs that were had to be approved by both the Treasury Department and the Commerce Department in the United States, those itineraries are rather rigid. Uh, there were things you were not allowed to do or didn't have time to do. You weren't spending a lot of time at the beach. You weren't spending a lot of time drinking mojitos, although everybody on my trip snuck a few in. Um, you were your, your schedule was pretty well packed with meetings, followed by more meetings and cultural exchanges. But even those rules have changed. Yeah, and, and it's changing, like you said, it's changing every day, and even um, companies like Airbnb are getting involved where you know, people can go and stay at someone's house and have more of that um, sort of experiential um, version of a trip to Cuba. Um, the restaurant scene is changing as well. There used to be a lot of state-owned restaurants. 
now a, a lot of um, it's sort of opened up in the past few years where there's these more privately owned restaurants that you can have much better food because um, you know in the past there was a there wasn't a ton of imported food coming in um, from from you know different places and, and the food there was pretty limited but now that that is definitely changing and and I think people are finding ways to to get off the beaten path and have the travel experience that they're hoping for as well and, and go to different places, not just Havana, but but sort of get out on the outskirts and, and go to more um, hidden spots on the island. You know, one of the things that you mentioned about Airbnb, it's not just that you can have a different experience. The reality is the infrastructure in Cuba is rather limited. There are only about 60,000 available hotel rooms. And where Americans have become propagandized over the years is in thinking that no one was going to Cuba because we weren't going. Everybody else is going but us. And so those 60,000 hotel rooms have been filled for the last two decades by Canadians. By the way, Cuba is the Canadians' number one vacation destination uh, by other Europeans. So Airbnb is sort of like you know necessity being the mother of invention. People need more rooms. And, and hotel building takes two to three years. So why not stay in someone's house? And, and ironically, Airbnb have, have, have turned the Cuban people into, into free spenders, into, in, 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 into, into you know, uh, capitalists um, and, and open trade, which is something that, you know, from a doctrinarial point of view, was not something I think that the original Castro regime had in mind. Probably not. That's for one thing for sure. And the other thing that's interesting in, in the wake of, of Fidel's death and in his passing, I found it quite interesting that in a country that completely immortalizes uh, Che Guevara, where you can't go more than 50 feet without seeing a poster, a banner, uh, an artist depiction of, of Che, um, you have uh, uh, now a, a, a statement by Raul Castro that under Fidel's wishes, there will be no monuments to him, no streets named after him, I find that incredibly hard to believe from someone who's thought of by so many of his own people as a nationalist. Right, and you, you speak about the people. We actually have a, a VJ down there right now from BBC World News, and, and she's sort of reporting on our uh, BBC Travel Instagram feed, and, and she's posted some great pictures, and, and she says that the people are coming from all different walks of life to pay tribute to Fidel. There's long lines absolutely everywhere. And uh, one, one reader has this quote. It says, um, this person says, it's my duty as a Cuban to be here because Fidel is so much, did so much for this country. So it, it, is, it is really interesting to see how people are, are reacting to his death and what it means um, at this particular moment. Well, you know, no matter what side of the political fence you're on, whether you are pro-Castro or anti-Castro, pro-Cuba or anti-Cuba, the interesting, you know, <laughs> Well, the interesting development is that everybody still wants to go, um, no matter what side of the fence they're on. Now, having said that, another interesting development is that with all the airlines now going down there, two things have happened. The introductory airfares are dirt cheap. Round trip on United from, uh, from Newark to Havana is 200 bucks. Uh, amazing. And just two days ago, American Airlines announced that looking at the first and second quarter of next year, they've decided to reduce service to Cuba because uh, not enough people are flying right now. So we've had pent-up demand for six decades. We have discounted tickets left and right. And at least one airline is saying, well, you know what? People aren't showing up. Uh, I don't think it's going to last very long. I think that's just the post-election holiday 
you know, malaise. I would think after after January 1, when people, especially on the East Coast, are freezing their you-know-what's off, uh, it'll be time to go down to Cuba. Yeah, I don't think it'll last either. And and I remember just, you know, a few years ago, to go to Cuba, you would often book through a tour company, and they fly a charter flight down. And for those trips, often they were seven- or ten-day trips that would cost upwards of three, $4,000. And, um, you know... The, the thought of cheap airfare is something that I think will be very welcomed once people start to realize. And, and it might just be a matter, matter that the, the news hasn't reached people. And like you said, it is sort of a time of the year when people are focused on other things. But um, I, I think people are going to be booking those, those tickets very quickly come the new year. Well, you know, you talk about cheap airfare. Let's put this in, in real great historical perspective, and that's this. In the old days, these were charter flights. They were not regularly scheduled flights, so things were more expensive. But everything else was all-inclusive. You paid one fee, which covered your air travel, your hotel, your transfers, your taxes, your tips, your meals. Um, and many Americans completely violated at least the spirit of the law. And let's let's put this in perspective. The original Trading with the Enemies Act, going back to 1963, stated the following. It didn't say that it was illegal for you as a U.S. citizen to visit Cuba. It stated that it was illegal for you to spend U.S. dollars there. And that was really designed to stop U.S. doing business to business down there, any Americans operating any kind of commercial operation. But it also could easily apply to tourists. So how did so many Americans sneak around and basically violate the spirit of the law? They booked all-inclusive packages through operators in Canada, the Bahamas, the Cayman Islands, Jamaica, and Mexico. And they paid for those in U.S. dollars, but in those countries. So that when they got their ticket and got off the plane in, in Havana, they never had to go back to their wallet. Uh, they, everything was taken care of. And in those days, of course, it was prohibited for you to bring back anything from Cuba because, A, that would, to acknowledge, that would be to acknowledge you were there, which made it a double whammy. And people were violating the spirit of the law left and right. Now let's talk about what's happening today. Now you are allowed to bring back goods and services, I mean, you know, up to a certain amount, like any other foreign country from Cuba. It's now legal for you as a visitor to Cuba to buy cigars or rum or any other Cuban artifact that's, that would be considered legal in any other country. Here's the real problem, Annie, and, and, and it hasn't happened yet, but my prediction is it's going to happen any minute. And that is you, you still have infrastructure limitations. The Cubans can't radically ramp up their cigar production. They can't radically ramp up their rum production. Uh, they can't suddenly build more hotel rooms. It's not going to happen right away. So for those people who are going down there to have what they perceive to be an authentic and genuine Cuban experience, they're going to be spending more money for it. I mean, imagine when these larger cruise ships start coming in and you have three and 4,000 people you know, piling off a ship in search of the last three remaining Cuban cigars, uh, law supply and demand kicks in, assuming they're even legitimate Cuban cigars and not you know, with counterfeit labels, uh, the prices are going to go up. So my advice to everybody is get rid of that five-letter word called later and go now. Now is time is of the essence for sure. And and also, you know, we, we don't know how things are going to evolve. And, and I think... Um, there's sort of long-term thoughts of, well, eventually there could be high-rise hotels built everywhere. Maybe that will happen. Maybe it won't. Um, things with the changing administration here in the U.S. could change things. So I, I think it is definitely a great time to go, um, especially I think there's going to be a lot of buzz right now, uh, especially with what is happening with Castro. And I think um, that for a lot of people, they want to be one of the first to get down there. There's sort of bragging rights with that. And um, yeah, winter's coming, so now's a good time to go. 
<laughs> yeah, take advantage of at least the cheap airfares, but watch out for those cigar prices. That's, that's right. what that, that's what's going to get you. I'm telling you right now, that's what's going to get you. But if you wait, uh, don't come complaining to me when you get down there and there's a Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, that's not why you're going to Cuba. No, not that is that is so true, and and I think you know a lot of things that you know people need to know about is hotel rooms are are somewhat scarce, and and they're a little bit you know from a quality standpoint. At least I found that they weren't as nice as maybe other places in the Caribbean that you might be used to. So look look at some of these other options. See if you can maybe try to to get a great um, Airbnb, and there might be a little more availability there. But there there are definitely ways that you can you can piece together that experience, and most importantly, get to know the people because there's such a rich culture and heritage, especially the way they sort of had this entrepreneurial spirit with their art, with their culture. Um, I think it's, it's something that you really want to go and see right now while, it, while it's still very captivating in the way that um, you'd, you'd expect it to be. And one logistics note, you don't necessarily have to fly directly from the U.S. When you take a look at who's flying there and where they're flying from, it's everywhere. So you can go through Jamaica, you can go through the Cayman Islands, you can go through Mexico, you can go through Panama City um, on, on Copa, which is a great airline. You can go on, you can go through Canada. Uh, and that way you can get a twofer, meaning you have to visit one of those other countries, hang in, go to Cuba, and then come back. It really works. We've been talking with Ann Bannis, the travel editor for BBC.com. Ann, as always, thanks for joining us on the CBS Radio Travel Hour. And we'll be back right after this. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Welcome back to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. And welcome back to the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News. Yes, the holidays are upon us, whether you like it or not. And if you're traveling, uh, good luck because airlines have reduced their capacity, which means that every flight's full even during the rest of the year. And especially during the holidays, perhaps the one saving grace over Christmas is that nobody's traveling all on the same day. Uh, they've staggered their departures. Same thing on their returns because you've got New Year's and the days afterwards. But still, the flights are going to be full. Airports are going to be crazy. Uh, Baggage claim area is going to look like refugee centers. Um, And there are things you need to know about should things not always go according to plan, which is usually what happens. Joining me now, the woman who leads the editorial team at Oyster.com, Kelsey Blodgett. Uh, Kelsey, you know, there are about 47, if, if, if I do the math on my numbers, there are about 47 different points of abuse that are awaiting you from the moment you decide to book a flight or a trip and the time you actually come back home. Uh, there are some things you can do to either minimize, reduce, or mitigate, uh, maybe even sometimes eliminate the problem, right? Absolutely. Um, I think you know, doing as much of your research beforehand as you can can save you a lot of headaches down the road. Um, one of the things I advise is to be careful which airline you book and which airports you have your layovers in, um, because they're not all created equal. Um, you know, Delta, Hawaiian, and Alaskan actually have great reputations when it t- comes to um, number of canceled flights, whereas you know, Spirit Airlines, I think a lot of us have heard of that one, um, has a pretty bad reputation. So I think just booking on a, a more reliable airline from the get-go could be something that could save you some hassle. 
And you've also mentioned airports. There are certain airports that seem to ma- they have mastered the art of bad weather. The one that comes to mind for me, and they figured out a way to keep the airport operating even in the most ridiculous conditions, is Salt Lake. Uh, oh, Salt yeah. Lake is an airport. They, I'm telling you, these guys have figured it out. I think they have the best record in the United States of keeping that airport open. So if you're going to be connecting over the winter months or especially over the holiday period, Salt Lake's not a bad place to go or yeah, go that's, through. that's great advice. And I would say don't go through Chicago O'Hare if you can avoid it because <laughs> they, have, well, they really do have one of the worst reputations when it comes to on-time and um, on-time departing flights. So, um, and in New York City, Newark has one of the worst reputations compared to JFK and LaGuardia. It's actually one of the worst in the country when it comes to the number of canceled flights. So now, I'll give, you one, I'll, I'll give you one that's a secret in New York. It's not Newark. It's not LaGuardia. It's not JFK. It's Islip, the airport oh, out on Long Island. good one. When we've seen complete shutdowns at JFK and Newark, I tell my friends, go to Islip. The dominant carrier there is Southwest. And believe it or not, you can get out. Even if you're going to L.A., they have a nonstop every day to Las Vegas, and you can connect in Las Vegas to get to L.A. The bottom line is, look at the connecting flight opportunities from these kinds of airports. Don't always think nonstop long haul because everybody else is too. Right. Now, let's talk talk about baggage because in my book, there are only two kinds of airline bags, carry-on and lost. And I know people, you know, sometimes have to check a bag. Uh, those people who, who know me know that I only, you know, uh, check bags internationally. I do not check bags domestically uh, for all those reasons. Uh, I actually ship my bags. I use FedEx or UPS or any one of a number of 15 different courier services that will do door-to-door service. But if you're going to check a bag, you have some advice for that too. Absolutely. Um, one of them is to take a picture of your suitcase. Um, so, instead of having to describe your suitcase to the, the crew after the fact, you can actually show them what it looks like. And that's going to really help them find it a lot more easily. Um, and if you're checking any expensive items, it's really important to have receipts for those items. Because if they permanently lose your bag, you need to be able to prove the value of your belongings. They're not going to take your word for it. You can definitely expect to haggle. Um, so that's definitely going to help you um, get compensated after the fact. And there's another issue that people don't realize. Airlines offer you um, compensation when they lose your bag or damage your bag based on what they perceive to be depreciated value. Mm -hmm. If you bought a camera and they lose the camera, first of all, you should never check a camera because it's excluded from their coverage. But if if you have an article of clothing or something that they will cover, they will base what they compensate you on, on on depreciated value only. So having that receipt, which shows you when you bought the item, is not a bad idea. Absolutely. Especially if it's brand new, if it's a gift for someone, they're not going to be able to make that depreciated value argument quite as easily if you bought it the day before. And, you know, you mentioned taking a photograph of, of, of your bag I go one step beyond that. Uh, take a time-coded photo with your cell phone camera of the inside of your bag with the contents of your bag showing because bag thieves do not steal bags. They steal individual items from bags. And they're hoping that you're going to do what everybody else does and that's you're so happy to see your bag when it comes on the carousel that you just grab the bag and leave the airport. The minute you do that, 
your standing in terms of getting something back that you've lost has just been reduced to almost zilch because it's your word against the airlines. You need to open your bag at the conveyor belt, make sure that everything is in there that you packed initially. Obviously, you have a photographic and a time-coded record of it, and then you can make a claim. Uh, One other thing I would suggest is this. We all know about putting proper ID on the outside of your bag. Conveyor belts love to eat those tags. They destroy those tags. So what you also want to do is on the inside of the bag, you can even do it with the masking tape with magic marker, put a proper ID on the inside of your bag. So if they lose the outside tag or it's destroyed or just ripped off, they can open the bag and find out who it belongs to. Otherwise, you're on another planet and another galaxy. Great advice, and I am going to be taking that advice when I travel home <laughs> for the holidays. Um, I do have to check a bag. I'm, I'm sorry to say, I know, I, I always try to carry on, but sometimes you have to. I know. Um, but on the ID front, that actually reminds me of another tip, which is especially if you are traveling internationally, to always, always have a photocopy of your passport or your ID if you're traveling domestically. Um, This happened to me. I had my passport stolen in Rome, and having that photocopy of my passport greatly expedited the passport replacement time. So that's another thing that can can save you some headaches. Exactly. And and the thing is this. If you're going to have that photocopy, don't put it in your baggage. Um, You know, keep it on your person, but not in the same pocket where your passport is. You want to keep it separately. The other thing you want to do is this. When you're packing, uh, whether it's clothing or items that are important to you, spread it apart over two bags. So don't put all your clothes in one bag and then your work papers in another. If they lose one bag, you have no clothes. Um, Spread it out. Uh, It's just basic common sense. And And remember this. Uh, if you're taking the last flight of the day, uh, there's a good chance, based on weight restriction or the capacity of the plane, your bag might not make it. May not may not make it till the next day, uh, especially if you're going to an island location. It may not make it till 24 hours later the next day. All the more reason to split up your items on on the two bags that you're checking, or you could be sadly disappointed. Great advice. And having a change of clothes in your carry-on always really helpful in case they lose your bag. Well, actually, Kelsey, that's not just really helpful. That's essential. Um, It it really is. We're talking to Kelsey Blodgett, who leads the editorial team over at Oyster.com. One of the things you guys have done for years, and it just cracks me up. Uh, When it cracks me up in a good way, because I think more people should do it, is your photo fakeouts, where you look at at a brochure either as a, as a manual brochure or as an online brochure from a hotel or a resort, and you look at the photographs that they use in that brochure to make everything look wonderful and beautiful and lovely, and then you send your own photo team in to show what it really looks like. Yeah, we've been astonished by how different the reality can often be. And I think a lot of travelers have showed up to a hotel and found it to be completely different than what they expected. So that's really one of the missions of Oyster.com is to show you exactly what you're going to get before you arrive. So when you see that gorgeous idyllic beach in the marketing photo and you show up and you find that it is so crammed together, you're literally rubbing elbows with your neighbors in a lounge chair, um, you know, look, some beaches are crowded and maybe you're okay with that, but we just want you to know what you're getting into. Well, the one that you did that I thought was so great was the one that you did about the Sofitel Hotel in Los Angeles. I know the hotel well. In their brochure, they show a beautiful pool uh, that looks like almost a sanctuary, 
a moment of great contemplation and reflection and just beautifully well shot photograph. In the reality, it's next to a parking garage. Yes, and there's a Macy's actually hovering over the pool. So you're like kind of feel like you're right next to a mall or something. Um, well, well, you don't kind of, wait, wait, you don't, you don't, and that might not be a deal breaker, <laughs> but it's just a different scene that you might be expecting. Well, you don't like kind of feel that you're next to a mall. You are next to a mall. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, I mean, you are literally next door to a, to the, uh, you know, to the, to the big center there, the, the Beverly center. Right. Um, I mean, people really need to know. I remember one, it was the Fest Parker Inn in Santa Barbara, California, and they took a picture that showed that it was on the beach, and they took it from the ocean. And, and in that picture, it looks like it's a beach, on-the-beach hotel. Actually, it's across a four-lane highway from the hotel. And if yeah. you've got kids, and you tell them, hey, go play on the ocean, you're going to hear the sound of brakes screeching. <laughs> um, so, it's listen... Everybody's time is important to them. Their budget is important to them. Their travel investment is important to them. And so if you're going to go based on just the brochure picture, you don't you don't come crying to me later on. Uh, you need to do a little more homework. And what you guys did at Oyster.com, what you continue to do with those photo fakeouts is really in the public interest. And I just want to thank you for that. Well, thank you. And, and we're glad to um, help people you know, find out the truth about their hotel beforehand because we don't want anyone to be in that situation um, where they show up and it's not what they want. All right, Kelsey Blodgett, who leads the editorial team at Oyster.com. Kelsey, thank you so much. We'll be back with more of the CBS Radio Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. And guess what? That means I'm Peter Greenberg. Back right after this. to play it a new podcast network featuring radio and tv personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it welcome back to the cbs travel hour with peter greenberg and welcome back to the cbs radio travel hour i'm peter greenberg travel editor of cbs news so far we've talked to annie banas from the bbc and and uh, kelsey blodgett from oyster.com about those famous photo fakeouts. love that but joining me now uh, a guy who, uh, if you don't know him, you should. The author of Cockpit Confidential and uh, an airline pilot himself, Patrick Smith. Welcome, Patrick. Hey, Peter. How are you? Good. You know, here we are with an, an incoming administration, um, and people know Donald Trump as a hotel developer and builder and manager. They know him as a television show host for his shows like The Apprentice or The Celebrity Apprentice. But not many people remember he once owned an airline. He once owned the Trump shuttle that flew between Boston, uh, New York, LaGuardia, and Washington, D.C. Um, it was originally the uh, Eastern shuttle, which uh, Donald Trump took over, and then it became uh, the U.S. Air shuttle after that. It was a short-lived project, and, uh, you know, say what you want about the Donald, but it was a, a pretty good airline in terms of uh, service and reliability. I used to ride on it all the time. Well, and, but uh, Patrick, to be devil's advocate here, he only had to go to three places. <laughs> Come on! But the, you know, the the Northeast shuttle uh, corridor has been, um, you know, ultra competitive for for decades. You had the Eastern shuttle, uh, the Pan Am shuttle, Pan Am? Trump shuttle, yeah, the U.S. Air shuttle. Now there's the Delta and American shuttle. So it's it's been with us a long time. It's changed over the years, and uh, you know, Donald Trump for a 
brief period was right in the middle of that, which is kind of funny. Nobody remembers that carrier. I think they only lasted uh, four or five years. Oh, New York Air, that was another one. There's another one, right. But I remember the Trump shuttle, he was flying 727s, mm-hmm. and uh, they didn't, in the interior of those planes, they looked a little differently, didn't they? <laughs> They definitely uh, reflected the uh, aesthetic tastes of the owner, put it that way. A lot of uh, uh, faux gold and, uh, you know, dark wood tones and, and, and fake marble in the bathrooms, that sort of thing. In a lot of ways, it was an aesthetic that, that presaged uh, Emirates airplanes uh, many years later on, that kind of uh, almost uh, Middle East meets Las Vegas lux kind of look. Uh, not to everybody's taste, but definitely very Trumpian. Well, you know, what's interesting is that if you take a look at the planes he was flying, of course, he didn't get them new. Um, he got them from, I guess, Eastern, right? Uh, yeah, and they were old 727-100s and 200s, uh, you know, older planes. But in the context of this was the late 80s, early 1990s, uh, the 727 was still a, a, a pretty common airplane in those days. So it wasn't... Uh, quite yet obsolete. So I wouldn't say that the failure of the airline was due to using uh, you know, inefficient older planes. Other, other carriers were using the same basic equipment. It was a, a bigger story than that and exactly what happened. A lot of people will say that, that Trump mismanaged the company, and, and maybe that's true. From a customer standpoint, though, it, uh, you know, it, was, it was a reliable and, and decent product for the, the time that it existed. Well, you know, I go back, of course, to the Eastern shuttle, and I remember uh, when Eastern had the shuttle, they claimed that no matter what time you showed up for the plane, let's say they had a 7 o'clock shuttle, and you came there within, you know, half an hour of the shuttle, even if they filled up the shuttle, they'd roll out another plane, even if it was one passenger, and they'd yep. take you. And they did. Stand and by, they actually stand by did. aircraft. And, and not only that, Peter, but you didn't even have to have a ticket. You could pay on the plane. I remember once riding the shuttle, and you just walked on and sat down, and, and they came down the aisle with a cart with a machine on it, like a cash register, and you just you paid after you were in the air. Um, and here's the other it funny was part. very reliable, always on time, never canceled. It was run almost as a, when Eastern and, and U.S. Air had them, they were run kind of uh, as airlines within an airline, almost separate entities uh, with their own dispatchers and, and, and operational teams so that they could put special focus and attention on these very particular, um, you know, high-revenue uh, business routes in the Northeast. And that's gone now. The, the shuttles that exist now are run just as, you know, more or less just part of the, the, the greater airline. And, and there's a good and, and also a bad to that. And here's the fun part about the Eastern Shuttle, other than everything else you just said, Patrick, if, for example, you got out there at 6.30 and the 7 o'clock shuttle was full and they wheeled out the backup plane, the backup plane was an Electra. You actually, you actually, <laughs> flew, you actually flew to Washington on a four-engine prop plane and it was, it was great. I loved it. I'm just old enough to remember going out to Logan Airport when I was a little kid and seeing the Eastern Electras uh, parked around Terminal A. I never did get to fly on one, though. Well, the cool thing about the Electra was... Because, of course, they never started as, as shuttle flights. I mean, they, they weren't designed for that, but that's what they were using them for. If you got on the Electra, you headed to the back of the plane. That's where the smart people flew, because the back of the plane was a circular lounge. It was, it was like lounge, this bank, right. it was a banquet of red leathers. It was hysterical on a flight that only took 42 minutes. I mean, oh, those were fun and days. On, and on the other extreme, Peter, uh, maybe you remember when um, 
Eastern was the first uh, U.S. customer for the Airbus, the original Airbus, the A300, which was a short-range but very big, wide-body plane held about, I don't know, 260-some-odd people. And they were using those on the shuttle for a while. Uh, you know, I nowadays know. it's 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 regional jets, and then back then you were on a a twin aisle wide body plane flying from Boston to LaGuardia. It was incredible. Yeah, these days if you take the Delta shuttle, you'll either get an old MD88 or an Embraer if they're flying it. Uh, you're definitely getting an Embraer if you're flying American, um, and much smaller planes. But but Trump only operated the shuttle for a brief period of time, and you said it was it was reliable. It worked, and he sold it because. I don't really know. Um, you know, I've read the analyses of what went wrong with the Trump shuttle, and the consensus seems to be that uh, that it was mismanaged from the top down, um, for what that's worth all these years later. And it never made a profit? Nope. <laughs> There's a reason right there. There's a reason. Um, that's a, maybe a symptom more than a reason in itself, but, but sure. And of course, you know, today we talk about in the in the wake of the of the presidential election, the power of the dollar against the foreign currencies, and you had to throw in Brexit. Uh, this total period of global uncertainty, airfares have plummeted. Uh, people aren't traveling at least in the next couple of months. At least if you look at the projections, and airfares. I mean, I was going from Los Angeles to Seattle the other day. Made a reservation the day before. It was sixty-eight dollars and fifteen cents. Um, I wanted to frame the ticket. And, and actually, if you took away the taxes, the airfare was something like $43. Um, I was going from LaGuardia to Syracuse. The ticket was $88. Uh, <laughs> London to Los Angeles round trip is $600. And yet, let's put this in perspective, I want to go from New York to Boston or New York to Washington today on the shuttle. Round trip, it's $609. <laughs> Well, big conversation there that we could spend all day on. I think the affordability of air travel today is something that's lost on a lot of people, people who don't remember how expensive it used to be to fly and, and how relatively few people actually flew regularly anyway. Um, and meanwhile, you have the, the market dynamics that make you know short-haul flights in, in some markets more expensive than long-haul flights to other markets. It's It's not the distance in and of itself that determines how much it costs to fly. There are many different factors. I know most of which still make no sense to me whatsoever. Or me. Okay, good. I'm just double checking because, you know, if I were to say to you, "Hey, Patrick, would you would you drive me in your car from New York City to the Bronx?" You might say, "Okay, that'll be thirty bucks." If I say, "Would you drive me from New York City to Los Angeles?" It might be three thousand. Airlines would would fly me to Los Angeles for thirty bucks and charge me three thousand to go to the Bronx. And the fares vary with the time of day, the time of year. Uh, you know, they have their departments that whatever algorithms or or you know software they use to figure this stuff out you know they're 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 good at it but to to those of us you know out buying tickets it it sometimes just seems to make no sense i think the airfares vary as you say time of day time of year i think they vary just based on personality disorder (laughs) (laughs) i mean there's somebody somebody sitting there in the fare department of the airlines going i'm not having a good day let's screw people going to chicago you know it's like I don't understand how they come up with it because I understand that you're going to spend more money on a popular route. Uh, excuse me, you'll make more money on a popular route, and yet that's where the fares are the cheapest. And then on a, on a, on a route that you, you would su- suppose would be much more expensive because it's not that popular, well, guess what? It's 88 bucks from LaGuardia to Syracuse. How many people are going from LaGuardia to Syracuse? Come on. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's confusing, but you know, let's also keep the the bigger 
context in mind, which is just flying generally, regardless of where you're going, is much more affordable than it used to be. I have a picture up on my website of an old American Airlines ticket coupon from the 1940s. Uh, flying from, I think it's New York to, to Shannon, Ireland, and when you do the uh, adjustment for uh, inflation, the, you know the ticket costs something like six thousand dollars round trip. Um, you know that's what people used to have to pay to fly. Uh, the idea of flying as a kind of mass transit for college kids to zip home on the weekends and you know, it's something that everybody can partake in is, is, is very new, at least, you know, post definitely post deregulation starting in the 1980s and leading to where we are now, where pretty much everybody flies. When I was a kid in, in the 70s and even into the 80s, you know, I knew a lot of people who'd never been on an airplane. It, it's pretty hard to meet somebody nowadays who has never flown. It's true, though. When I was in college, they had something called student standby. American had it. I had my student standby card from American and from TWA and from United, which was, you know, you go out to the airport and fly standby, they just charged, they just took half off and you just jumped off, the, you just jumped on the plane. I, I would, I would love them to bring that back, but there's no incentive for them to bring that back since all the planes are full to begin with. And it's changing now, uh, you know, foreign carriers making big inroads into the U.S. market, uh, not in terms of cabotage yet, uh, which is another subject we could talk about, but uh Norwegian Air just had its application approved to fly between the U.S. and Europe. You've got Emirates and Qatar coming in big time, uh, taking over markets into India and, and, and further into Asia, bringing American, European people uh, into those markets instead of the U.S. carriers or their partners doing it. That's becoming very controversial. Where that's going to lead, I'm not sure. Well, Patrick, stay with me on that thought, because when we come back, I want to talk about what just happened with the Transportation Department granting their rights to Norwegian Air Shuttle, because I think that is really going to open the door to a lot of other carriers overseas to fly to U.S. airports that may not even be properly served by overseas airlines. So stick with me as you come back to the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, back right after this. We'll go right away in three, two, Welcome back to the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News. We've been talking to Patrick Smith, author of Cockpit Confidential and our pilot extraordinaire. Uh, the U.S. Department of Transportation, a very controversial ruling, depending on which side of the, of the, uh, the Atlantic you are, uh, has awarded rights permanently uh, for airlines like Norwegian Air Shuttle to fly to the to the U.S. and and this is significant because many major U.S. carriers were lobbying against this and 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 fighting against it, claiming that it put them at an unfair disadvantage. Uh, that this airline was coming in and, and and to give you an idea of what we're talking about, uh, about a year ago I needed to go to Bergen, Norway, and I looked online like I like to try to research online. Those of you who listen to my show know that I'm not a big fan of booking online, but I was looking online to see what the airfares were from from New York to Bergen, Norway. And of course, every airline that came up on the normal search basically said you had to go through London on British Airways or in Paris uh, through Air France or maybe Iberia. I mean, you're going through a hub of a major European uh, carrier and the cheapest coach airfare round trip was like seventeen or $1,800. And then, just for giggles, uh, I went online and went on Norwegian Air Shuttle just to think, maybe they fly it through Oslo or maybe they fly it through Stockholm. They have a nonstop from New York to Bergen, and the airfare was $333. Their business class airfare 
was like something like $630. Well, you know what I did. Of course, I was going to fly business at that fair. Um, and they're, they're flying a brand new 787 Dreamliner. And they're doing that now to so many U.S. cities, whether it's Fort Lauderdale or Los Angeles. And now they, can, now they have the rights to do it permanently. What do you think this is going to do to the rest of the, of the airlines that have to compete with them now, Patrick? Well, the question is, how are they doing it, and are they doing it fairly? And and the answer seems to be no. You know, when the when the government makes these decisions, it seems like they always defer to whatever will give the American public the cheapest airfares, uh, which sounds good on the surface, but it can be to the detriment of our own carriers, our own industry, our own workers. Um, you know, does that enter into the passenger's mindset when buying a ticket? Probably not most of the time. Uh, Norwegian Air is a, an unusual case. It, the, the politics here are hard for me to understand completely, but it's a Norwegian company registering planes in Ireland, uh, using crews from Southeast Asia. Um, there are labor issues here, uh, flag of convenience issues, as it's called. Uh, Long term, you, you could see great upheaval in uh, international aviation markets with with these airplanes using this flag of convenience thing to you know kind of the way uh, shipping um evolved over the years with ships being <laughs> registered in Liberia and, and and Panama to to basically avoid uh the higher costs of of doing business the way it had been done traditionally um the you know the issues here are exploitation of of workers and 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 unfair competition and and it's it's all part of i guess the globalization of of commercial air travel for better or worse i i don't know if it's anything we could even stop at this point um it's it, it's a big and and complex issue it is and yet uh from a consumer point of view you welcome it because if you take a look at the route networks of some of these other new carriers that are coming into the U.S., they're not necessarily flying just to New York, Chicago, and L.A. You want to fly from Zurich to Las Vegas, there's an airline that's now flying it nonstop. It's called Edelweiss. Whoever heard of them? Um, you know, and, and now you're, you're, you're looking at airlines like Emirates out of Dubai. Yes, they fly to the big U.S. cities. They're now doing nonstop service coming up from Dubai to Fort Lauderdale. I mean, wow. Yeah, and Qatar right. just announced a route into Las Vegas. And, and what the Gulf carriers are doing is a little different. They're funneling traffic from the U.S. and from Europe through Dubai or Doha, whichever, and from there into India, Pakistan, China, um, through the subcontinent, down even into, into Southeast Asia and Australia. Um, the, the thing is, though, that the U.S. airlines don't really fly to those markets, except with scattered exceptions. So it's, it's not quite the threat that I think a, a Norwegian air is, where you're, where you're taking U.S.-Europe traffic, which, which much more directly impacts the U.S. airlines and, and their partners. The Gulf carriers, I think, are more of a threat to the European airlines than they are to us, because we don't fly to most of the places where U.S. passengers on those planes are going. Right. And then some of the major international carriers who are trying to be competitive are looking for routes where they have absolutely no competition to be able to fly nonstop service, like British Airways now flying nonstop from London to Austin, Texas. Nobody else is flying that route. Um, Hainan Airlines in China flying nonstop 
uh, from Beijing or, or Shanghai to Las Vegas. Nobody else is doing that. Um, and Boston, Hainan comes in uh, twice a day here in, in Boston with 787s. And, and part of the reason these carriers can do that is the technology of these newer planes that allows for these long but thin routes in terms of, of passenger carriage uh, to be profitable. The planes are so economical that you can make money on a 14 or a 15 or even a 16-hour flight with just 200 seats. Um, that that didn't used to be the case. And then, you know, there are my favorite little stories that I love doing every year on what I call secret flights. Um, flights are, are constituted as fifth freedom right flights. And let me explain that. These are airlines that are given the right to fly between two cities, neither of which is their hub or their base, in route to their base. Uh, and they're allowed to take local traffic. So that means if you want to fly from Los Angeles to Paris, you can fly on Air Tahiti Nui uh, because the uh, uh, the flight actually originated in Tahiti and stops in Los Angeles. Or if you want to fly from, uh, uh, up until recently, if you wanted to fly from Los Angeles to Sao Paulo, you could do it on Korean Air uh, right. on a flight that started in Seoul. The one that or drove me nuts... Or how about New York to Frankfurt, uh, Singapore on, Airlines. On Singapore every, Airlines. Every day on an Airbus A380. Not bad. Uh, I believe Singapore was also doing a route from it was uh, Houston to Moscow or, or something They're still crazy doing like it. that. They're, st- they're, they're still, still doing, doing it. it. Um, and the one that made me giggle all over the place was I was in Sao Paulo and needed to go to Buenos Aires and um, and was trying to figure out who flew it. Well, of course, you know, you have Aerolíneas Argentinas and some of the Latin American carriers like LATAM or LAN. And then I opened up my old OAG. For those of you who don't know what an OAG <laughs> is, it's okay. I'm really dating myself. It stands for Official Airline Guide. Um, and they used to publish books the size of the yellow pages, which had every airline schedule. Now they come up and they are still publishing pocket books of them every month. And I still subscribe. Uh, and I can find f- uh, flights in that faster than you can ever find them on the internet. And I found a flight from Sao Paulo to Buenos Aires for $110. It only operates once a day. And here it comes, Patrick. Turkish Airlines flies from Sao Paulo to Buenos Aires only because the flight lands in Sao Paulo from Istanbul, goes down to Buenos Aires, picks up traffic going back to Turkey, stops in Sao Paulo, and goes back as a nonstop to Istanbul. But if you Peter, didn't know... I, you'd I, flew, I flew once from Bangkok to Hong Kong on Kenya Airways. Same thing. I mean, there are routes like this scattered all around the world. Just uh, really fascinating. And um, to be fair, the U.S. carriers have some fifth freedom rights as well. For example, from uh, Japan throughout Asia, uh, Delta and United still have a number of routes. Those are fifth freedom, um, plus others. So they're they're out there. It's not that other carriers have an unfair advantage that we don't. It's, it's, It's a mix. The other one I love, there used to be one from Quito, Ecuador to Mexico City. It was Lufthansa. Really? Um, so, you know, if for those of you who just want to have some fun, I believe the OAG is still online, oag.com. I mean, you'll find everything listed there. It's not a it's not a prioritized or preferential site. It, it lists every flight that's listed, not just every flight that wants to be listed or every flight that wants to be sold. It's every flight. It's a directory of every flight that operates. You should check it out because lots of surprises there, and in many cases. On some of these Fifth Freedom uh, Flight Rights flights, um, what you discover is you're the only one who knows about it. They have to operate the flight anyway as a shuttle. Um, you get better service. You get a better deal. 
because they just because they literally have to put, move the piece of equipment. It's a positioning flight. They have to move the piece of equipment somewhere else, and you get a, a chance to go along for the ride. What you won't find, at least for now, is foreign carriers flying between cities within the United States. That's yeah, that's cabotage. cabotage yeah, and, and that's uh, you know maybe looming at some point in the future. We don't know, but let's hope not. Now, here's one I'd love to talk to you about, and that is come January 20th. Donald Trump's going to have to downgrade. He's going to have to go from his plush 757 to Air Force One. The lowly Air Force One. I mean, he will not be allowed to fly uh, his 757 because it doesn't have the security package, the communications package, uh, the anti, you know, uh, the, the electronic countermeasures package or anything, right? As far as I know, yeah. Um, but, you know. <laughs> and, and it doesn't have, and it doesn't have his 757 doesn't have refueling capability either. Um, so uh, so far, Donald's uh, seemed to come up with his own set of rules as he goes along. So who knows if that will change too? You know, I've heard Peter that uh, Air Force One is changing. That um, you know, the current aircraft is an old uh, 747, 747 200. 200. Yeah, and uh, they may be upgrading to a 747-8, which uh, would be something to see. Beautiful well, actually, airplane. actually, they are. They're going to build two of them. I was just up at Boeing a couple of weeks ago, and and while the official order hasn't been received, it can only go to Boeing. It won't be a very competitive situation because under the rules and their long-standing rules, a U.S. president can only fly on a four-engine manufactured in U.S. airplane. Well, last mm-hmm. time I looked, there is only one four-engined U.S. manufactured airplane up there, and that would be the 747. I thought you were going to say the Electra. <laughs> Wouldn't yeah, that would be if Pee Wee Herman were the president? Um, no, but but and it will be a 747-800. What what people don't realize, and that's because the 89th Military Air Wing out at Andrews Air Force Base takes such good care of these planes, that even if you were to get on the current Air Force One, uh, the the Boeing model 747-200 that you talked about, it still has that new plane smell. It still has that new plane look. And the reason is, as any pilot will tell you, it's not the age of the plane, it's the cycles. And and when you take a look at the cycles, meaning takeoffs and landings, that Air Force One has had, that 747-200, American and United put more cycles on one of their 757s in a month than Air Force One has had in its lifetime. Even though the plane is 28 years old, because it, it was finished in 1988, Ronald Reagan never flew it, it was delivered in 1989, and George Herbert Walker Bush, President Bush, was the first president to fly it. And then after Bush, of course, it was uh, uh, it was Clinton, and after Clinton, it was Bush, and after Bush, it was Obama, and now it will be Mr. Trump. Uh, even if Boeing got the order uh, to build the other two 747-800s, uh, they wouldn't be delivered for the next 18 months to two years. Mm-hmm. And the existing plane, uh, as you just said, an old design, um, but effectively a brand new airplane based on the amount of use hours and, and cycles, which are, are pretty minimal in the kind of flying it does. You know, Peter, I've been on the uh, A380, the 787, the A350. I still haven't been on a uh, 747-8. Actually, I, I was on one. I got a chance to fly one going from Chicago to Frankfurt on Lufthansa. And they put me in the upper deck, and I have to tell you, it was a, it was a delight. 
Uh, although if you know the history of the 747-8, the only reason why Boeing ever built it was because Airbus was so late in delivering the A380s to so many of their customers that Boeing thought they could rush one out, uh, an extended version of their current 747, and get additional sales, which they did, but certainly not, not enough. No, and, and this is a conversation we've had before. It's too bad that the 747 seems to be uh, in its dying days production-wise because it's such an iconic and such a beautiful plane compared to the uh, rather ghastly-looking uh, A380, which is a great ride on the inside, but aesthetically it, it, it has to be the ugliest jetliner ever built. <laughs> you really think so? I really think so. I mean, the, the 747 is, is elegant. The, the A380 is whatever the opposite of elegance is. I mean, the way I always say it, the, the 74 is, is the Empire State Building of, of airplanes. It's, it's no longer the biggest or the newest or the flashiest, but I think it's, it's still the most classy. And not only that, it took some getting used to because when they first designed that plane, people forget it was designed as a freighter. Um, and that explains the nose. And, then and what's astonishing is, is that airplane, the 747, sorry to interrupt, went from a design literally on the back of a napkin to an actual flying airplane in about two years. Which uh, is I mean, that's, rapid. that's staggering. It is staggering. And here's the ironic thing. It started as a freighter, morphed very quickly into America's most iconic passenger jet. Uh, uh, jet, if you're looking about passenger plane, you have to throw in the DC-3, I suppose. And... And what's keeping the Boeing 747 program alive is not a commercially scheduled airplane for passengers. What's keeping them alive is the orders they're now receiving from UPS for what? Freighters. It's come Freighter. full circle. Yeah, it's come full circle. Yeah, and, good point. Uh, good point. Yeah, so United Airlines is retiring theirs this coming year. Um, so is Delta. And when those two airlines retire their 747s, there will not be a U.S. airline operating a 747 anywhere in the United States. Uh, there still will be 747s coming in for a while from uh, from Virgin and from British Airways and from a number, number of other carriers. But it's definitely a program that is fading uh, because of fuel efficiency and operational costs. And, and that doesn't mean they're going to defer to another A380. I think they're looking at the A350 to be the and, and the extended version of the 777. To take to take over from the seven four, that's exactly right. Um, you know, I put a post up on my website recently. The my thoughts on the three most important and influential influential commercial airplanes of all time, and I I picked the DC three, the seven oh seven, and the seven forty seven. Yeah, you're right. Not, not just because it's cool, um, but it really did change air travel as far as making long haul. Uh, air travel affordable for the masses. It, it was when it debuted in 1970. It was more than twice the size of any existing plane, and, and of course, I was never the same afterwards. Listen, I was on the very first 747 on American Airlines that had a piano bar. <laughs> <laughs> I was with, and, and, and you know who performed the the first night? Frank Sinatra Jr. and his band going from LAX to JFK. Okay. And you know how long the piano bar stayed on the plane? Not long because. After that incident or that event, every other flight, there was some 11-year-old kid back there playing chopsticks, chopsticks <laughs> and driving everybody on the plane batty. Um, but, you know, the thing that did it for me, the 7-4, it was the circular staircase. I mean, there's just so many cool things about, about that plane. I, per, for one, I'm really going to miss it. 
Uh, but we will see about later generation planes as they come out, if there are going to be any later generation planes that are truly as iconic and is, and is uh, staggering in terms of the change that they represent as the 747 was. Patrick Smith, the author of Cockpit Confidential, always a pleasure to talk to you, sir. Thank you so much for joining me. And this concludes another edition of the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg. We'll see you next time right back here. <laughs>